Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Those words should be getting familiar. It's now the third week we have been in the Good Samaritan. Thank you for reading that to us. Because God has called us to neighbor well, and we want to do that. We've committed that as a church. Today's question is, who is my neighbor? So you might not have seen the Andy Griffith Show, or maybe you're not a fan of the Andy Griffith Show. And if that's the case, you're missing out. It's a good thing. And I'm just going to share, just if you haven't seen it or you're not a fan, hang with the rest of us while I share a scene from one of the best episodes. It's called Mountain Wedding. And I'll introduce you to Briscoe Darlin. <clears throat> Briscoe didn't get into town much. But on this day, he came into Mayberry to look for Sheriff Andy Taylor. And he, was, uh, he had a problem. So he got talking to Andy, but he'd never met Deputy Barney Five. He's the shorter one in the middle there. And if you haven't met Barney yourself, he's, uh, he's, he's high-strung, is what they call him. He's high-strung. He's a little different. So uh, Briscoe had never experienced that before. And before they start talking, he says, is it okay I talk in front of him? And he introduces him as the, sh as the deputy. Then he begins talking, and Andy says, what brings you into town? Briscoe says, Trouble. And when Andy asked what kind of trouble, he begins to explain. You see, Briscoe had a daughter named Charlene Darlin, and she was married to Dud Wash. And Andy, as the Justice of Peace, did their, officiated in their wedding. But the trouble was this strange and weird character named Ernest T. Bass. He was throwing rocks through the windows and making all kinds of racket, trying to get Charlene's attention because he wanted to marry Charlene, but she was already a married woman. So this is the kind of trouble they had, and Andy says to, uh, um, to Briscoe, he says, well, couldn't you and the boys handle him? He says, thought about killing him, kind of hated to go that far. And that's when Deputy Fife pipes up in his official tone of voice, and he says, it's a wise man who knows not to take the law into his own hands, you know. And Briscoe looks at Andy and says, he arguing with me? And he says, he's agreeing with you. And Briscoe says, just so as I know where I stand. So they make a plan. Andy and Barney are going to come out the next day, and they're going to see what they can do with this Ernest T. Bass. So they say goodbye, and, and Briscoe's on his way out. And um, he never quite figured Barney out. But on the way out, Barney says, Adios, amigo. And Briscoe looks at Andy and looks at Barney and he says, He one of ours? Andy says, Sure. And Briscoe looks back at Barney and says, More power to you. He one of ours. No one quite says it like Briscoe Darling. But we all ask that question. And it's a dangerous question. It's an us and them question. I'm not picking on Briscoe Darlin. He was a good country man. You watch the episode, you'll like Briscoe Darlin too. And, Andy, and Barney was different. He was very different. He was a nut. So he wasn't wrong to wonder about Barney. The question is, the problem is, he went to ours, 
assumes that when someone's different, that requires that we need to be divided. And we don't have to be divided just because we're different. He went to ours is a dangerous question. And it's a similar question to what you and I ask. And it's a question that was asked in this parable in different words by the lawyer. Who is my neighbor? So we're going to look at that question and we're going to think about this danger of having different people in a different camp where we're divided. These are one of ours. These are not one of ours. So let's pause and pray as we get into the study. Father in heaven, pray you'd touch our hearts to make us neighbors of the way you've called us to be. Help us love people in ways that changes the world and makes people want to know you and makes Jesus attractive to people who had no interest before. Thank you for this parable. I pray you'd open our eyes as we study it again. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to focus on these two words, minimal and maximal. So we're going to think about what minimal neighboring is and maximal neighboring. And the question, who is my neighbor, is not a bad question. So we'll get that straight. It can be asked well. The danger of who is my neighbor is when we ask it in order to check people off the list of who deserves our love. That's when it becomes dangerous, when it's minimal. When the intention is to minimize love, who is my neighbor becomes a very dangerous question. When the intention is to learn more about our neighbor so we can love them better, who is my neighbor is a great question. It's a great thing to be curious about who God has put around us. So we're going to look at the minimal, and this is where the lawyer went. When he's asking the question, he's looking for what is the minimal, and then Jesus' response explodes his view into what heaven could do to our neighboring experience. And remember, he was a religious lawyer, so don't imagine him necessarily in court. You might recognize Sheriff Taylor in a different uh, TV series here. And lawyers do some pretty careful work. When there's a case not going in their way, they look for loopholes. They look to redefine terms. They look for the minimum that's required to get what they, they're looking for. And this lawyer had actually himself pronounced the verdict. Here's what you need to do. Love your neighbors yourself. But as he said it, he knew that if that's interpreted too broadly, that's not good because that's really hard. So after he pronounced, this is what we do, he says, now let's define some terms so that we can actually achieve this. So he says, and who is my neighbor? And it was a discussion that was familiar in the Jewish, uh, among Jewish scribes. Jesus was being invited into a discussion that this lawyer had had before. Who is my neighbor? Because the human impulse is to minimize love. So when you're a scholar and you find a biblical scholar and you find a commandment that says, love your neighbors yourself, the impulse will be, how can I redefine this so that it's achievable? I'm going to minimize love. And as he looked to, to redefine it, he had help right in the text. So um, going back to the very first message, so three weeks ago, Part one, we looked at justification and justice, and we said that our view of justification 
changes our action of justice. The way we understand being saved and loved by God changes the way we love others. And we saw that self-justification produces limited justice. And Christ's justification produces overflowing justice. And that's similar to what's going on right here. Now, if you're going to look for a loophole, we're going to go back to Leviticus 19. This is how you limit love. And Leviticus 19 has a section about loving your neighbors yourself. Verse 18 is where it actually says the phrase. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. But as we get there, it defines neighbor as the poor and the sojourner, um, the deaf, the blind. It says when you have the rich and poor in court, treat them equal. Just don't show favoritism. And it talks about your neighbor being your brother. And then in 18, there's a phrase that was so convenient for anyone who wanted to limit love. This is what verse 18 says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see that phrase, sons of your own people, is a very convenient phrase to limit what it means to love your neighbors yourself. It's a he one of ours statement. Because I can love my neighbor as myself if my neighbor is limited to my own people, sons of my own people. So in asking, who's my neighbor? Jesus is saying, how do you deal with this? Because I see that my, I can love my neighbor. I just get to hate a whole bunch of people who aren't one of ours. I just get to love these people. So Jesus listens to the question. And then he offers a parable. And he targets this error of minimal neighboring. And he does that by highlighting people who the lawyer would have seen as his neighbor. So who does he highlight? He highlights a priest and a Levite. And he makes those people in the story the bad neighbors. So these are people who are one of his. These are his people, and they're the bad neighbors. You see, the Jews were masters at the he one of ours question. And they had, uh, it was very easy for Jews to think exclusively because well, God chose them. He chose them out of all peoples of the earth. They were a chosen people of God. But here's the thing. God did not choose them because he hated the rest of the world, but because he loved the rest of the world. He chose them to be separate from the world so they wouldn't be polluted by the false worship of the world and so they could take true worship and shine a light for God to the rest of the world. Here's an image of Herod's temple and on this side of the wall you see the outer court, and on the inside with the building, you see the inner court. The outer court was also known as the court of the Gentiles. So here in the image, you have Gentiles who can go to the outer court, but they can't go into the inner court. It's actually opposite of what God's intention was, in my understanding. He set Israel apart so that they wouldn't be polluted by the worship of the other nations, but they could invite people into the worship of the true God, and instead, what they did is they took the worship of the true God and excluded people from it. So here is a wall. It's actually a four and a half foot wall that they had around this inner court. And in the wall, there was about 13, Josephus, historian Josephus tells us there were about 13 inscriptions. And this is what he says about them. He says, there was a partition made of stone. Its construction very elegant. Upon it stood pillars at equal distances from one another, declaring the law of purity, some in Greek and some in Roman letters, that no foreigner should go within that sanctuary. 
So they were not allowed to go in there. And then we find further wording on what was in these inscriptions from archaeology. So archaeologists, to my knowledge, have found two of these inscriptions. And on this physical wall, blocking off Gentiles from the inner court, there were these inscriptions that, that pro prohibited them from entering, and they added a few words. Here's one of the inscriptions right here. And on it reads this. Whoever is caught will be personally responsible for his ensuing death. Not a very nice neighborly thing to say. Just imagine. We don't do this. But imagine we had a sign that says, all people are welcome into our lobby. But if you come into our sanctuary, we're going to have to kill you. Happy Sabbath. <laughs> this is their worship. They walked into this place to worship and went through this sign that says, if you're not one of ours and you come in here to meet God, you took, you're responsible for your own death. You, you were the one that's guilty for this. Do we ever do that? So just think about as a church. Do we ever make barriers to keep people at a distance? And then if they come, we make it so hard for them to come into the inner court to meet our God that they just, they stand outside and they say, you know, it's not worth the risk of trying to fight through this barrier. I think we do. I think we're wall builders too. I think every one of us is guilty of being a wall builder. And we look at people, we say, they're not one of ours. And so I will love you as myself if you're in this group. But if you're in that group, I don't have to love you. But here's the deal. If you get to choose who you love as yourself, and if you only choose to love who you must, and then you choose to hate who you can, that's not actually love. That's not love at all. Loving those you have to love is not love. And so this inscription in this wall, they hit us hard because it's what I do. I say, well, you are not one of mine because uh, we think differently about religion. We think differently about worship and, and God. We think differently about COVID vaccinations. We think we interpret the statistics differently. I prefer Microsoft software, and you prefer Apple software. And I prefer to do this hobby, and you prefer to do that hobby. And pretty soon, we've made divisions because you're not one of ours, so I need to be very separate from you. But differences don't require division. They had mastered it. They made a physical wall. Here's the deal. You know what God does to walls? We make them. You know what God does to walls? They took this wall so seriously that when Paul actually, he was arrested and accused of bringing a Gentile into the inner court. It was a very serious offense. Well, this is what he, Paul, that same guy who was arrested, he writes about that wall. He writes in, in Ephesians chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once off, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he was literally referencing that wall. He was, he was writing in a way that they would envision this wall. And he said, he broke down that wall. So we build them and God breaks them down and says, they're all one of ours. Every single one of them is one of ours. So this is minimal, 
neighboring. It's the, it's the way that we look and we say, if you're different, let's be divided. Well, Jesus presents a different style that, that is way to the other extreme. And he tells a story, and when he begins it, he says a priest and Levite. Those were his neighbors, and they were the bad guys. Well, now he says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, when he came to where he was, and when he saw him, had compassion. Jesus makes the Samaritan the good guy. And this man, if you understand the history we're going to look at in just a minute, this man was stretching his brain just to even think of a Samaritan being considered good. And Jesus intentionally makes him the protagonist in the parable. He is the good guy, and he neighbors well. And here's the history. Just go back for a few minutes with Jews and Samaritans. So you know King David, you know King Solomon. They ruled a united kingdom. But after Solomon, Israel was divided into rival kingdoms. So the tribes in the north followed Jeroboam. The tribes in the south stayed with Rehoboam. And the tribes in the north had a problem because Jeroboam, when he took them away, Jerusalem was their, their holy city, he took them away to the north, he knew that his people had to go back to worship and offer sacrifice in Jerusalem. So he had people whose religion required them to return to his rival kingdom just to worship. So he set up idol worship in Samaria, and it is, it is something that is referred to over and over again that the kings did not uh, reverse the sins of Jeroboam. So he sets up this idol worship. So it's now an apostate group of these ten northern tribes in, in two different kingdoms. The, the northern tribe took the name Israel, and the southern tribe took the name Judah. So as you go through the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it just jumps back and forth to the story of Israel and Judah. If you've ever been confused by that, it's because... There's two divided kingdoms, and they never, ever reunite. So the tribes in the north settled in Shechem is where Jer uh, Jeroboam set up these high places. And this is the region of Samaria. The region below it is the region of Judea. Well, in 721 BC, the Assyrians came, and they took all those ten tribes captive— and they disappeared to history. You cannot locate those ten tribes in a place anymore. But they didn't take all of them. So some of the Jewish descendants in Samaria stayed. And they intermarried with all the other people of that area. So they became a half-breed of Jews, right? They were, they were Jewish, but their, their tribe identity was taken captive. And those who stayed were mixed. So now we have the Samaritans, who actually are kind of Jewish. But they're apostate, and they worship differently, and they're intermarried. So the Jews and Samaritans had a rivalry of bad neighboring that literally went back a thousand years. And it, at different points along the way, we see it rising up. So the Jews, the kingdom of Judah, they were actually taken captive too. And that's the story of Daniel and Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. But unlike the northern tribes, the southern kingdom returned from exile. You know that story? Ezra and Nehemiah. So they actually returned and they start rebuilding Jerusalem. Well, who is it that is among those people who oppose them and threaten them and write letters back to stop the work in Jerusalem? People of Samaria. So they were bad neighbors, Jews and Samaritans. We see the animosity between them when Jesus comes 
to a Samaritan woman at a well. And it says in John 4, it literally says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They don't talk to each other. And then later, as they begin talking and the woman opens up, she's thinking, why are you talking to me? But you're very full of wisdom. So she asks a question. Well, you Jews say that we have to worship in Jerusalem, but we say that you have to worship on this mountain. And she was talking about Mount Gerizim. And so there's this different place of worship. Two different holy places. Two different Torahs. The Samaritans had a different uh, arrangement of the Torah, and they believed theirs was the only good one. Well, that doesn't set well with a Jew, does it? And then they took out the books of the prophets and the books of the writings, and they had a different whole religious system. So here were their bitter rivals for a thousand years, and they were worse than Gentiles because they were apostate half-breed Jews. So this is the person that Jesus makes the good guy in the story. The guy's stretching his brain to think of any good a Samaritan could do. And here's his point. He's trying to say from the, the view of heaven, those Samaritans, they're one of ours. They're humans too. Look at this man in the story. He's doing a good thing. He's doing what you say you should do. They're actually your neighbors. Jesus' neighborhood is really big. Isn't that good news? So maximal neighboring begins to see that Jesus doesn't have any boundaries. He says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's saying, your enemies, neighbors. So he's expanding the view of what neighboring means. There's a book by Bob Goff, and the title is, Everybody Always. That's a great two-word definition to the question, or two-word answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Everybody. Always. Jesus has a big neighborhood. And then, this is Desire of Ages 503, we get an answer that is pretty solid and pretty broad. This is what it says in Desire of Ages 503. Thus the question, who is my neighbor, is forever answered. Christ has shown that our neighbor does not mean merely one of the church or faith to which we belong. Go Ellen White. She's saying it strong and saying it powerfully. And then it concludes, it has no reference to race, color, or class distinction. Our neighbor is every person who needs our help. That's who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is every soul who is wounded and bruised by the adversary. Our neighbor is everyone who is the property of God. And who's the property of God? Everyone. So with this maximal definition, this maximal answer to the question, Jesus is telling a parable to say, everyone is your neighbor. That's the answer to your question. Everyone is your neighbor. And that's pretty huge. So... Here's the first, uh, I think I skipped ahead to one there. So the question we, uh, the principles for maximal neighboring, I'm going to give you two of them, two principles. And here's the first one. It is see everyone as your neighbor. So that's pretty clear in, in what Jesus is saying. Every single person, even the one you hate the very, very most, that you think could not do any good, you might not even consider them human of the same species as you, they're your neighbor. So see everyone as your neighbor. But then, how do you do that? So let's get really practical. If everyone is my neighbor, am I supposed to exhaust myself, stretching myself so thin 
that I have no good to offer anyone. Well, here's a few numbers to put it into perspective. So this was yesterday, what I screenshotted offline, that there are 7,923,433,270 people in the world. And it's gone up a whole bunch since I put that on there yesterday. That's a lot of people. So for the sake of simplicity in our calculations, let's just subtract 23.5 million. Not that they're not important. They're one of ours too. But let's just say 7.9 billion people on the planet right now. We'll just say that. So it's a big world. But now, let's think about the truth that it's actually quite a small world for us individually. Big world out there, but it's a small world for us individually. So this is um, the work of Robin Dunbar. He's a British, British psychologist, and he's produced some numbers. This is his book called Friends. He's produced some numbers that are very similar to the biblical 3, 12, 70. But he says you can have about three to five close friends. These are people you interact with every week. They're close to you you don't really have the capacity to have more. And he argues it's not preference, it's not personality type, we're actually limited cognitively. Our brains are not wired to actually make deep, meaningful connections with more. And then he says you could have about 15 to 20, he calls them your sympathy crew. These are people you see often, maybe once a month, maybe once a week, but they're, they're people you're close to, but you're not deeply connected. So that's, just say you had five and then 15. That's 20 people. You got 20 people you're pretty close to. And then he says, this is the number that you see most when you Google his name. He says that the maximum number that you can have a meaningful connection with is 150. You could know more people, you can like more people, but the maximum number that the human brain has the ability to have a meaning, meaningful, sustained connection with of some type is 150. And these are people you might see only a few times a year, but that's the max our brain can handle. So when we go beyond that, that's 150 out of 7.9 billion people. So how do you be a neighbor to everyone when God says everyone is your neighbor? And I can only really know about 150. Our world is small. Here's another way to look at it. So this is from York University, and they did a study the title says 5,000 faces, okay, on average. They did a study that some people on the very low end could recognize about 1,000 faces. On the very high end, about 10,000. So this does not mean you know their names. This is your brain's ability to say, I've seen that face before, all right? So this is, these are the people that are at the checkout counter at Walmart or the sweaty guy in the gym you see on Tuesdays or the kids in your uh, your child's class at school, or maybe your own yearbook when you open it up and you see your fourth grade teacher and you recognize it. So these are faces that you could recognize. These are even celebrities, people you've seen in movies or you see on the magazine. If you recognize their face and say, I've seen that before, the maximum number, not the maximum, the very, very high end for very high functioning brains is 10,000 of those, okay? So let's say that you're above average for the sake of calculation. Let's just say you could recognize 7,900 7, faces. And there's 7.9 billion. So if you do the math, you do the division, that means every face you recognize is one in a million. You divide 7.9 billion by 7,900, you get a million. So if I could say, I think I've seen that person before, that means there's a million people on the planet I will never ever have that experience with. 
for everyone. I don't even know their name. That person who sits in the front left of church that you know you've seen them before, but you don't know your name, that's one in a million that you would even recognize somebody. So if you see my face right now, online or right here, and you can say, I, I've seen that face before, here's, here's the chances. The percentage of people that you know less than you know me. So the people in the world that you will never, ever have a contact as deep as you have a contact with me just by seeing my face is 99.9999. That's, that's 99 with nine or, uh, four nines after the decimal. That's a nine in the 10,000th spot. That means that there's that, that's the percentage of the people you will never, ever have a contact with as much as the person you just see their face. A lot of people you will never, ever interact with. You'll have no influence on. You will never know they existed. So how do you be a good neighbor to them? This is a graphic I found that does a little calculation. So it's impossible to tell how many people we influence, but this one goes by how many people knew you could influence probably a day, and it multiplies that by the average lifespan and how many days you would live. And it says you'll probably interact with about 80,000 people in your lifetime. So not a whole big percentage. So how do you deal with all those people you'll never, ever be a good neighbor to? Well, Jesus gives us an answer. I love this little insight in the parable. So we're going to ask that question. How do you be a good neighbor when Jesus' neighborhood is huge and you'll never have access to 99.9999% of it? Well, the story goes, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Samaritan wasn't on a mission trip. Samaritan wasn't on a Save the World campaign. The Samaritan was on his normal path in his daily life, and he crossed paths with somebody, and he loved them. Here's the point. We can't be present everywhere, but we can be fully present where God has placed us. There's a whole bunch of everybody out there that we'll never interact with, but God's given us somebody right in our path, and that's the person we are to love. So, principle number two, maximal neighboring is that you prioritize the people in your path. So the word neighbor comes from this old English word, ne, geber, and ne means near, geber means dweller. And in the word neighbor, it almost has the word nigh right in front of it, right? So this concept is it's the person who's near you. Your neighbor is everybody, but the one who you get to treat as a neighbor is the one who's near you. So how do you know if they're one of yours, if you need to love them, if there's someone that God has called you to be a blessing to, to smile at, to be generous to? If God has placed them in your path at any level, you go to church with them, that's very high on your path because you see them regularly. If you see them once in your life, God has placed them in your path. If he's placed them in your path at any level, that means he's called you to be a neighbor to them. It makes it really easy. Who should I love? Who's one of mine? Anyone who's in my path is my neighbor. And that's what Jesus presents us with. So prioritize the people in your path. Don't focus on the everyone, but the anyone. So anyone God gives you, whether they smell gross or they look weird or think differently, anyone is your neighbor, even though you can't reach everyone. So don't try to share yourself with the whole world. Don't do that. Instead, bring your whole self into the world around you. Don't try to share 
yourself and spread yourself too thin. You'll exhaust yourself. But bring every bit of yourself into the people around you and realize that person that you see out at work or wherever you see them and you, they're in your path routinely, that is someone very, it's a very rare thing to have interactions like that when you consider the rest of the world. God has placed them in your path for a reason. You might not be able to spend four hours shoveling the driveway. You might be able to smile at them. They're in your path, and God has called you to neighbor well to them. So here's a phrase that sums it up really well. This is by Pastor Andy Stanley, and I love this. Go home with this phrase. It says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Isn't that a good principle? Man, I can't go visit everyone who's sick and pray with them, but I can go to the one and love them with an intensity from God that it's like I wish I could do it for everyone. I could just do for the person in my path the thing I could wish I could do for the 99.9999 people I will never, ever interact with. And you know what? If everyone is doing that for the person in our path, we're going to neighbor really well. So do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. So it's a dangerous question, but I invite you to ask the dangerous question. Ask who is my neighbor and ask it with curiosity and love. Maybe even a sense of adventure. Like, why has God placed this person in my path? This is, this is a one in a million opportunity to love this person. So if God has placed them in my classroom or my church or my uh, circle of friends or my work employee group, why has God placed them in my path? And then you ask God, who is my neighbor? I want to get to know this person you've placed in my path. And it becomes an adventure in God's love as we get to know those people that God, for some reason, has decided we're going to cross paths. God is not called us to create barriers. But he does call us to set boundaries. I can't be everywhere. So even characters like Ernest T. Bass, they're my neighbor. Now, I should probably set a boundary so he doesn't throw rocks through my window, right? I need to set a boundary there, but he's still one of mine. I'm not going to set a barrier to say, I have to hate you now. No, we need to set some boundaries so that I can love you in the right way. So we're going to go back to the story. Andy and Barney, they went out the next day, and they found the Darlins playing music. And in they say, you bring your string and instrument, Sheriff. And he says, I, don't th I didn't think we'd have time for music. And that's when Briscoe Darlin says this wonderful, famous Chinese proverb. You got time to breathe. You got time for music. It's a good one. And so they play a song, and Dud Wash says, he requests a song. He says, how about playing Don't Hit Your Grandma with a Great Big Stick? Don't you love that song? But Charlene says, oh, Dud, that one makes me cry. So they played a different song. And they get done playing the song, and Andy says, we better, probably better go find this Ernest T. Bass. But Dud says, hey, he's a pest, and a pest will find you. And sure enough, a rock came through the window, and they went out to meet this Ernest T. Bass, and they could not believe the character they saw. And what they found is Ernest believed that Charlene's marriage was not valid. He says to Andy, you marry her? you a preacher? It wasn't a preacher wedding, so they're not rightfully married. So they said, we're going to get a preacher out here tomorrow. We're going to have a preacher out here tomorrow. We're going to have a preacher wedding, so you'll go away. Well, that should have been a sign of defeat, but Ernest took it as a sign of hope, and he says, I got 24 hours to quarter. So we went off, and he came back later to, as he said, 
woo her with his ways. He played a song, and Charlene's looking out the window and skeptical, but Andy says, just tell him it was good. And then he says, I can do 17 chin-ups. And he says, I'm the best rock thrower in the county. And he says, and I'm saving up for a gold tooth. Well, she refused him, and he says, you ain't heard the last of Ernest T. Bass. So the next rock that came through the window had a note on it, and it said, you might have a preacher, and you might have a wedding. You might not have a bride. You ever think of that? They thought, he wouldn't steal the bride. But Andy had a plan. Andy always had a plan. So Andy had a plan. They have the preacher wedding the next day, and they have everyone there. And sure enough, Ernest comes, and he fires a few shots, and he steals the bride. But when he saw the bride, it was Barney Fife. (laughs) And the deception took just enough time that they're able to take the real bride out of the bushes and do a proper a proper preacher wedding well to his reluctant satisfaction Ernest said I gotta back off this is this is official now I learned when I was reading about it this week that actually Don Knotts who plays Barney Fife wore the same exact dress as Charlene Darling because they're the same size worked out pretty well saved money on costumes So here's the point. Don't miss the point. He won ours? (laughs) Well, in all seriousness, so often the person we most desire to disassociate ourselves with turns out to be the very person we need to solve our problems. The person that you most want to say, stay away from me, might be the exact person God has put in your life And you need them there. They're one of ours. So that is who your neighbor is. Everyone God places in your path. Even when you want to push them away, God says they're yours. And I have a reason for them being in your life. Now, we have one more week to focus on the Good Samaritan. Here's what we're going to do. I encourage you, if you've been stirred by these messages in any way, or you have a story of neighboring well, to contact me this week. And I want to reserve some of the time in our church service for testimonies about neighboring well. If you've seen it in action in this church or anywhere else, we're going to take time to give God glory for ways we've seen neighboring well. Maybe it's even just something you've thought of as you reflected on uh, this study that has touched you or moved you, and you want to just say, this is something I didn't realize before, and I want to grow in this way. We're going to take time in the service next week to give testimonies about neighboring well, and and just, just contact me. So my My phone number and email are a good way to do it. If you don't have those, they're on the website or you can grab me. And we'll share these things and grow a neighboring well. And we're going to close with a song. You probably don't know it. It's a song called um, Go and Do the Same. And it's a song I've heard my whole life. My mom had the CD and played it. And it tells the story of the Good Samaritan. So the words are on the screen. If you do know it, sing along. If you don't, Think about the words and just let it be a time um, when God calls you to neighbor well and to do the same to somebody and to see everyone as, as one of ours.